good morning, Mission Hill. I love, I love your, the, the warmth of this room. I felt that last time Sean and I both have felt the warmth of the community here. So uh, I'm just happy to be in that space again and share this time with you. Um, and so thankful for, for Aaron in, in my life and his camaraderie and friendship through a very difficult season for us. Um, but really just excited to share this. I was here, I don't know if you remember if you're, or if you were here, but I got to launch the, the Luke series and, and then I think someone fixed it next week. And then and now I'm back to wreck it again and, and they can put it back on course. So, uh, no, really, really excited. Now, um, I, as I was thinking about how to start this, believe it or not, I, I thought of an, a, a little section of a book called Couplehood from Paul Reiser, Mad About You. Does anyone remember that show from back in the day? And he, he starts his book in a very interesting way. And I think it sets the tone for what, what we're going to do here today. Um, it goes like this. When I was 12, I remember holding hands with this girl. I want to say Patty, but I'm guessing here, and something about the way she held hands was just wrong. <laughs> Her fingers didn't line up right. Do you know what he's talking about? You know how when you grab someone's hand, the fingers sort of slide automatically into place, your thumb next to their thumb, second finger next to their second finger. Simple, right? He says, not a lot of ways to screw that up, this girl did. I think what she did was slide her fingers into early so they're all out of sync with mine. I'm sitting here holding hands with myself trying to explain this to you. <laughs> okay, so here's what it is. I like my pinky to be on the outside. Anybody else like that? You want your, I'm a pinky on the outside person. And she started one finger too soon, so her pinky was on the outside. My pinky was smushed up between her third and fourth fingers. Now, I'm not saying she was a bad person, but the second we held hands, I knew she wasn't for me. We just didn't fit. And I knew I couldn't explain it to her either. And this is, this is where I'm going with this. Because the way I figure, there are two types of people, those who get it and those who don't. If they get it, there's nothing to explain. If they don't, there's no point in trying to explain. <laughs> they don't get it. Move on. But I remember thinking that if you're going to be with someone, you should find someone who gets it and someone who fits. I was stalking uh, your page this, this last week and noticed that Pastor Trev spoke last week and did a beautiful job walking us through the beginning of Luke chapter 7. And essentially Luke chapter 7 is, it's a narrative that introduces us to several kinds of people. There are the people that get it and the people that don't. Do you remember that? So the centurion, when he expresses his faith towards Jesus and understanding of authority, Jesus is like, where did you even come from, right? Like, I haven't seen this kind of faith even in Israel. And then there are the people that clearly don't get it, that didn't get Jesus. When I say get it, I mean get him. Like, understand who he is, what he's about, how that works. Faith in Christ works. I want to ask you a question here today. I think it's a pretty important one. How do you know if you're one of the people that get it and whether you're one of the people that don't. Because most of the time, the people that don't get it don't know they don't get it. They think they get it. This is the problem with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They thought they had Jesus. They understood, and they put him in this little box, and they were totally missing who he was. And then there's someone who's a completely unlikely candidate, this centurion who shouldn't get it and gets it. So how do you know if you get it or you don't? 
The story that I want to unpack today is a beautiful one. It picks up the narrative in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and 37. There'll be scriptures on the screen, but uh, you can also turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. And we're going to meet two people. One person gets it, gets Jesus, and the other one clearly doesn't. Now, what I want to try to do today is I want, to, I want you to continue to ask this question. Do, do I get it? Do I get it? What kind of person am I? But I also want you to try to figure out in this story, and it shouldn't be too hard because we're 20th century eyes looking back in hindsight with all of this history, and we know the word Pharisee doesn't hold some great connotations, but I want you to remember that back in Jesus' day, that wasn't necessarily the case. These were very pious individuals that, that, that held to the letter of the law. They're trying to be faithful to the law of Moses, and yes, they had sort of an overblown understanding of their own self-righteousness, but at least they were trying to get it right and trying to make everyone else get it right like they got it right. But here are the, here's how the story unfolds. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So, seems like a decent guy. He's invited Jesus for dinner. First blush, it seems like this, oh, if this is the story about who gets it and who doesn't, clearly he gets it. He's having Jesus over for dinner. And then the second character steps into the scene. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Oh, she clearly does not get it because she's living a sinful life. Well, she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. In other words, she crashed the party. She doesn't get it. She just crashed through all of these. And not only that, it's a Pharisee. And she's a sinful woman. Now, I've got something to show you. I don't actually have a jar of perfume. But this is, and this is eyeglass cleaner. <laughs> you tell. <laughs> I, I clearly don't smell good, but I mean well. So what, what was happening, whoa, I just, sound guy's going, stop. I'm, I'm. Can someone help me? <laughs> thank you. This is perfect. This is great. My wife's going to help me. I couldn't see. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sound guy's like, stop. Okay, so Brad does not get it. Okay, so what, what was clearly happening is this woman came with a jar of perfume. When they, when they say jar, don't think honking like mason jar. Think like a vial, a jar, an alabaster jar of perfume. And she would likely have been wearing this around her neck because she's a sinful woman. This is code, especially with the perfume in the picture, for a prostitute. And prostitutes in her day would wear a vial of this special perfume around their necks to signal to the men who might be interested that they were on the market. And so when they needed the perfume, they would dab it on, and this distinctive aroma would also alert men to the fact, this is a woman of the night, okay? So the moment she walks in wearing this perfume around her neck, everybody knows this woman's a problem. And just crashing the party into the Pharisee's house, he's thinking, oh no. What are my friends going to think? Like immediately, like, this is not good. And I think he's kind of waiting to see what Jesus does with this. Now, before I get too deep into the story, I want to give us a frame to look at it with. Backing up 
to the larger narrative of Scripture. I believe, and, and you can think with me, that throughout the pages of Scripture, like from the moment human beings stepped onto the scene, they were created by God, till the closing chapters, the final credits of the book of Revelation, God is essentially asking humanity, and then by extension, every single person who has ever lived, two questions. These are haunting questions. The first question is, will you trust me? And of course, when Jesus comes on the scene, it becomes, will you trust Jesus? We sang about that. The, the reading, the Lent reading was all about that. Will you trust me? The second question is, do you love me? Do you love me? I want to submit to you that there's not a situation that you face. There is not a moment that you're alive that in some way, shape, or form, God is not asking you those two questions. Will you trust me? And do you love me? Will you trust in me? Or will you trust in your own ability to produce your own righteousness and sense of well-being? Will you trust in me? Or will you trust in that financial cushion that gives you a sense of security? Will you trust in me? Or will you trust in your ability to, to propagate a, a persona, a, a reputation that puts you in a good light with people? Will you trust me? or anything, or anyone else. The second question is, will you love me? What, where are your affections going, your energies, your passion? Where is that going? What are you spending yourself on? Do, do you love me, or, or do you love praise, and seeking praise, and, and receiving praise? Do you, do you love me, or do you love comfort? Do you love me or do you love the sound of your own voice? What, what do you love or whom do you love? Do you trust me and do you love me? The Apostle Paul puts these two concepts together beautifully in Galatians 5 verse 6. This is, he's talking about circumcision here. Not enough time to get into that today. But the principle applies then throughout all of Scripture. The Apostle Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Giving God a resounding yes to the answer to his questions. We've got so many questions for God. God's questions are far more important. This is why when Jesus was asked questions, he often deflected by asking a different question. It's like, good question, wrong question, <laughs> right? You, you should be asking a different question. So, is your faith expressing itself in love. This is going to help us understand who gets it and who doesn't. So let's go back into our story. As she, the woman, this sinful woman, stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair and then kissed them and poured perfume on them. This should be very uncomfortable to read. <laughs> if you understand what's going on here, or even just picturing it, this is awkward. Now, just as a bit of an aside, I love what's happening to this Pharisee right now. Because she's poured this very distinctive perfume out, and it's wafting out. He's got, she's, he's got 
prostitute perfume wafting out the windows of a Pharisee. It's just beautiful. So, like, I just picture him, like, coming to the outside. It's not what it smells like. Like, just, like, what's... It's just beautiful, this upending his apple cart. But she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. Here's what I'm picturing. I, I like to use my imagination to visualize, like, what, how would this work? Like, what would that look like? So this woman comes, it says, from behind him at first. Why? She doesn't even think she's worthy of facing him. Maybe at this moment in her life, she's afraid what, it, what his face will be telegraphing to her. He, he, she doesn't want to feel judged. I don't know what it is, but she feels humiliated by the weight of her sin. So she comes to his feet, and she starts to weep at his feet. And she's crying so hard. She's sobbing so hard that her tears are getting him wet. And then she's like, oh, no. (laughs) Now I have defiled his feet. And she's thinking, what do I wipe my tears with? And the only thing available is her hair hanging here. Because, again, this kind of woman would have had her hair just flowing free. And so she starts wiping his feet with her hair, and then... Do you see it? As she's bending over, weeping at his feet, hanging in front of her is this vial of perfume, the symbol of her sinful life. A year's wages, we know from other passages. This is her future. This would be the equivalent of a of a teenage kid flushing his drugs down the toilet. So as she's giving herself to Jesus, as she's pouring out her contrition, her her confession, she sees this symbol. She sees if this remains intact, I'm just going to go back to what I was doing. So she breaks open the jar of perfume and pours it at his feet. There's no going back. This is an act of repentance that is so beautiful that Jesus actually, we'll see in a minute, calls it an act of love. It's it's somehow both of these things together. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit, but when we come to Jesus, there's something about the presence of God that reveals the stuff we're holding on to. The things, the symbols, the, the, the activities, the attitudes that are keeping us from a full surrender to him. Well, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw this, this beautiful act of confession and surrender and love and worship and dependence and faith. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Oh, Jesus knows what kind of woman she is question is, Mr. Pharisee, do you know what kind of man you are? (laughs) She gets it. She understands that without 
the forgiveness of Jesus. She's lost. And here's this beautiful act of surrender staring you right in the face, and you've got your arms folded, distancing yourself from it, figuring out how you're going to explain this to your friends, judging her actions, judging Jesus for not getting it. How's that for not getting it? And in, in this moment, I mean, this, is, this could be one of the, the references Jesus is mentioning when he says, hey, uh, teachers of the law and Pharisees, like the prostitutes are entering the kingdom in, in front of you. Like, you're missing the boat, right? She gets it. She understands. He clearly does not get it. He's in a position of judgment. And in fact, a genuine display of faith and repentance repulses him. Makes him uncomfortable. It should, because <laughs> he's missing it. So, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Well, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed 500 denarii and the other 50, and neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, oh, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven? You judge correctly, Jesus said. This is one judgment you've made correctly. The implication is, well, you finally got something right. <laughs> right? You're, you're missing the point. You finally got something right. Then he turned toward, towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this? I love that. Do you see this? No, I don't see him, right? Like, but the fact is, no, he didn't see her. All he saw was sinful woman. He didn't see her like Jesus saw her. Simon would have been like, yeah, I see her. I smell her. I, I taste it. It's like I can, it's on my palate. Like, how could I miss her? Well, Jesus says, I came into your house. I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a beautiful, uncomfortable story. I was um, scrolling through my Facebook feed endlessly about a month ago and saw a posting. So one of the people in my world posted this statement that at first blush sounds beautiful. It sounds true. But the deeper I went into it, especially reflecting on the story, it actually made me almost want to cry. And it was this. He said, the closer to God we get the more guilty we feel. The closer to God we get, the more guilty we feel. It's not right. It's true 
that when we come close to God, we are confronted with our sin. That's, that's true. But do you, is there any sense in this story that Jesus wants her to walk away good and aware of her guilt? No. What does he want? Did you notice that he says to Simon, the Pharisee, even before he's talked to her, her sins have been forgiven, already done, and her love isn't what helped her get her sins forgiven. That would be works. Her love shows that she's been forgiven. It's proof that she's been forgiven. Her faith is expressing itself in love. And so when he's done with Simon, then he turns to the woman and says, your sins have been forgiven. Well, why do he say that? They've already been forgiven. Because he wants her to know it. He doesn't want her walking away wondering whether she's still guilty. He wants her to walk away forgiven. That's why he, even in the closing remark, says, go in peace Your faith has saved you, not in the sense that her faith achieved something, but this lavish gift that he gave her, the mercy that Jesus poured out on her, she was able to receive it by faith. So it was the channel through which this free gift she cannot earn became actualized in her life. And now he wants her to walk away. I want you to walk away in shalom. The Greek word in New Testament is irene. It's, it's the sense of well-being, untroubled, peace, right with God, right with yourself. I want you to be right with the world. This is how I want you to walk. See, see this, this, I know what this friend of mine was posting online. I don't know. I know what he was getting at. But a more accurate statement would be, the closer to God we get, the more forgiven we feel. I love that statement because it it puts us right in between in this sweet spot because if I say I'm forgiven, I admit I was guilty. I haven't minimized that. But I'm also fully accessing this grace and mercy that only Jesus can provide. I am forgiven. This is how he wanted her to leave, head held high, not cowering in shame. I am forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. This is the transformative posture. Now, why does he want her to feel forgiven? Well, he loves her. But back to those two questions. God is asking each one of us, do you trust me? Do you love me? Is your faith expressing itself in love? What do we see in her story? We see both. Your faith has saved you. You trust me. And your great love has shown me that you, 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 you have been forgiven. You, you, this, is a, this is a woman who trusts, at least in this moment of her life, trusts Jesus. She's put her trust in Jesus, and that is expressing itself in an expensive, lavish, passionate, convention-crashing love that doesn't care what anyone else thinks, because I'm forgiven. I have met the one my heart desires, right? I, I understand. I, and she, this is such a beautiful picture. While Simon is still sitting there with his arms crossed, unwilling to learn. Unwilling to learn. 
I want to point something out. And, and some of you aren't going to like this. So I'll take a drink first. In this scripture, we are seeing demonstrated the kind of love that Jesus deserves from us. Not to try to earn anything, not to try to get anything out of him, but because he's worthy. Because of how forgiven we are. Because of the the infinite price he paid for my sin upon his own shoulders. And and there's no escaping in this passage. He, He says, if it's expensive, good. I will not offer God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Right? If, it, if it's lavish, if, it, if it's, you know, if it transcends our concern for what other people think of us and even crashes through social conventions and expectations and taboos, so be it. The most important thing is, am, is my faith in Jesus expressing itself in the love he is worthy of receiving from me? It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. And, and in, in this passage, it is lavish, it is passionate, it is messy, it's awkward, and honestly, just reading it kind of makes me blush. And Jesus loves it. Uh, Now, there are three possible reactions to this story. One of them, well, maybe more, but one of them is to explain it away, biblically. And this is something that I think we, we need to learn not to do as Christians. Because I'm, I'm fairly certain, because this happened to me when I was reading it, I'm fairly certain there's somebody in this room that has said, ah, well, true, but it, God looks at the heart, and so you can't really tell externally and, and all of this stuff. And, and what, what are you doing? You're trying to water down the impact of this scripture using a different one, which sounds an awful lot like what the devil was doing with Jesus in the wilderness, why don't we just let Luke's story stand? Like, Luke didn't put a little footnote, by the way. As you will later learn in the rest of the canon, there are ways of getting yourself off the hook by just insisting. Like, just, he doesn't do that. He, he wrote this story that is supposed to cut us. It is supposed to, to break us open. It's supposed to confront us with our lack of love for God. That's what it's supposed to do. So I would urge you, Please don't try to explain it away and go, well, that's not my love language and that's not my personality type and it's not my Enneagram number. It's not my this. It's not my favorite Bible verse and I express my, God, my love for God in different ways. It's not about the perfume. Do you understand? It's about the heart. So if I can't explain it away, if I have to just let it sit and convict me, and expose my lack of love, then the second reaction, equally pernicious, would be to just revert to works, to go, oh, then I just need to love God harder. I need to love God more. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig deep. I'm going to figure out what it takes. I'm going to do it. I'm going to sacrifice. In other words, when we feel guilt over our lack of love, we, we try to transform that guilt into action. But guilt can't produce love. It can only produce duty, which isn't what he's after. 
He's asking, do you trust me? Do you love me? And by, by marshalling our own strength and our own resources to love God more, we're actually not trusting the finished work of Jesus that we're supposed to hang everything on, right? Remember, her love sprung out of her forgiveness, out of her sense of being forgiven, of being chosen, of being graced by God. It wasn't earning anything. It was just an overflow of what Jesus earned. That's what it was. Well, then what do we do? Here I am. What if in this, in this moment, I'm fully identifying with Simon? I, it's like, that's me. I'm the one sitting on the sidelines, my hands in my pockets, trying to figure out how little I can get away with loving God and still, for it still to count. That's me. So what do I do? I, I can't write it off. I'm not supposed to try harder. We go back to the gospel. We go back to the gospel. Our problem isn't that we're not trying hard enough. It's that we haven't yet grasped how forgiven we are. Because the, 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 the secret here isn't actually that she's sinned so much more than Simon. It's that she sees it so much more than Simon. I think you can see in this scripture even just how self-righteous Simon is. Well, I'm worthy to have Jesus over. She's a sinner. Oh, so you got to go back to the gospel, my friend, because we're all alike under sin. We all deserve the judgment of God in every way that he decides to, to like throw it on. A, and Jesus took that upon himself. So Jesus, show me again just how lost I would be without you. Convince me, Jesus, of my lostness without you. Show me again how lavish your grace is, how great is your mercy, that I even get to be in your presence and be your child. That's where it begins, because faith expresses itself in love. Now, there's something else that's at play here. And that is that you and I come from very different cultural backgrounds. And many of us are not used to expressing our love for Jesus in maybe visible ways. And not that you'd want to show off. She didn't care what anyone else thought. It's not about that. So, so what do we do? Like some of us are actually not like Simon. We're like the woman. Like we don't know how long she was standing outside that door knowing that if she stepped across that threshold, like there's this fear element. Like if I go, he'll see me. Everyone will, like there's this moment of, huh. And some of us are feeling it right now. So she, she probably had a moment where she wanted to show that kind of love for Jesus, but she was afraid. So here's, here's, the solution, again, is that as we cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus, as we come back to the gospel, we will be confronted with whatever we're holding on to that is keeping us from that full surrender to him. It will come up. Even though he wants to lavish his grace on us, he will not turn a blind eye to sin. So it will come up. So what is it now? Is it, is it the fear of man? 
Is it, I'm afraid what people will think? I'm afraid what, what my coworkers will think? I'm afraid, like, what is it? What, what do I have to lay down? What, what more do I need to break open? And just release that to God so that I can give myself fully to Jesus as he deserves. Um, if it's in the way, it has to break. It has to go. And he loves us enough that he's, he's going to keep bringing it up if we let him so that we can lay it at his feet. When we do that, it's not just that issue that breaks. It's us in a beautiful surrender with a, of a contrite heart. Which is really nothing of value in a human sense, but somehow of infinite value to God. A contrite heart. I want to close with a, a brief story, and um, it, it will make some of you uncomfortable. That's the point. Um, because the story we just covered makes us uncomfortable too. I, um, I grew up in a Mennonite Brethren church, very conservative, like zero expression in worship. None. Like, I, I, I seriously wonder whether it was even allowed. Like, I'm pretty sure they had snipers up in the balcony. <laughs> you raise your hand, it's like row three, seat two. <laughs> Out of there. No more. We can't have this. So this is my, my upbringing. Like, I don't even remember. It, was, it wasn't even called worship. It was singing. That's what it was. And, and so just like, and <laughs> just so serious, always. And so... Uh, in my early 20s, um, I somehow found myself at a, at a conference put on by some charismatic group. And it was like, we are not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> like, it, like, it was, what is even happening? And, and I'm not trying to convince you of anything here. I, all, I'm, all I know is that this, was, this was not what I was used to, okay? Like, at all, and the expressiveness and all that. And I was very uncomfortable, quite frankly, but I knew I was supposed to be there, and I think a church had paid for me to be there. So I was like, oh, so I have to sit here. And uh, at some point in the gathering, there's like three, 400 people, okay, huge. And I'm sitting maybe like 25 rows back, something like that. This lady stands up and says, I'm getting a sense from the Lord on my own, no. And she says that there are men in this room that you need to break out of your box and you need to learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength like David danced before the Lord. And instantly I felt sick because I knew I was that man. <laughs> like, and I, and it was, there was no organ playing. There was no manipulation. Let's just, you know, just as I am one more time. Like there was nothing. <laughs> it was like instant. No, like inside of me, just everything was rebelling against this. So she says, you know, in the next couple of songs, we just invite you the men to come to the front, and you just, just worship God and, you know, dance before the Lord with all your might. I'm like, nope. That's a, no, thank you. And, uh, but now if I get up, and it, people, like, I, to leave, people are going to think I'm coming forward. So I, I got to stay. I'm just staying exactly where I am. And uh, first song goes by, I'm running through all the rationalizations. It's like, Lord, you know I love you, but I just, that, wow. And so I just was rationalizing. First song passes. Halfway through the second song, I'm thinking, well, 
Now if I come forward, it's probably almost over, and then I don't have to turn around and come back, and I'm doing all of this stuff. I kid you not, in the middle of this service, this woman stands up, turns around, looks directly at me, points to me, and says, brother, you need to be up here. I'm like, yeah, you know, no, I was just on my way. I, uh, sun was in my eyes. I was like, and so I'm like, well, I'm humiliated anyway. So here I go, Jesus. And, I, and it, you know what it was? I wasn't being forced. God was helping me with this. I was, none of my resistance had anything to do with anything spiritual. It was, I didn't want to look dumb. This isn't how I was raised. Da, 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 da. Who cares? Right? So I got up there and I, now, to be, to be, <laughs> to be fair, I think I'm going to get to heaven. Peter's going to go, hey, that was a cool moment, but what was that? What were you doing? I was like, <laughs> it was not dancing. I'm not sure. <laughs> and God will be like, leave him alone. I, I loved it. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it wasn't, I know it wasn't dancing, but he tried. Right? But, but what happened inside of me was important. Again, I'm not making any comment on denominations, theology, nothing. It was me and Jesus. <sighs> Something broke open inside of me because what I had wanted all along to express came out. Because someone had the guts to say, hey, that thing you've been carrying around needs to break because Jesus is worthy. So, <laughs> here we are. I'm going to stop now. Um, but I, I want to encourage you. I want to remind you again, there's not one right way what, what I'm talking about is expressing the love that you have for Jesus in a way that reflects his worthiness, his greatness. And if, if you're not feeling it, then we go, just go back to the gospel and go, I need to understand how forgiven I am, okay? Now, I, I understand that we're going to celebrate communion uh, again, and so I want to encourage you to come up and come get the elements during this next song. Is that right? Okay. And um, I also want to encourage you to remember it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. But as a corporate, as a body, we can show Jesus our love together. You know what, do you know what revival is? It's a whole bunch of people doing what that woman did together. That's all it is. That's what it is. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Um, Ooh, would you teach, take my words and, and sink them deep? God, help us not to sit back in a kind of self-protective stance like Simon, but to say, Jesus, you are worthy. God, if we don't get it, if we just truly don't understand how forgiven we are, would you take us there now, even as we come around your table? Um, but if, if there's just a block in us that we just, we want to because we love you so desperately, would you help us break that thing so that we can give you what you're due? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.